Chapters 49 through 52 of Of Human Bondage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maughan. Chapter 49. The story which Philip made out in one way and another was terrible. One of the grievances of the women students was that Fanny Price would never share their gay meals in restaurants, and the reason was obvious. She had been oppressed by dire poverty. He remembered the luncheon they had eaten together when first he came to Paris, and the ghoulish appetite which had disgusted him. He realized now that she ate in that manner because she was ravenous. The concierge told him what her food had consisted of. A bottle of milk was left for her every day, and she brought in her own loaf of bread. She ate half the loaf and drank half the milk at midday when she came back from the school and consumed the rest in the evening. It was the same day after day. Philip thought with anguish of what she must have endured. She had never given anyone to understand that she was poorer than the rest, but it was clear that her money had been coming to an end, and at last she could not afford to come any more to the studio. The little room was almost bare of furniture, and there were no other clothes than the shabby brown dress she had always worn. Philip searched among her things for the address of some friend with whom he could communicate. He found a piece of paper on which his own name was written a score of times. It gave him a peculiar shock. He supposed it was true that she had loved him. He thought of the emaciated body in the brown dress, hanging from the nail in the ceiling, and he shuddered. But if she had cared for him, why did she not let him help her? He would so gladly have done all he could. He felt remorseful because he had refused to see that she looked upon him with any particular feeling, and now these words in her letter were infinitely pathetic. I can't bear the thought that anyone else should touch me. She had died of starvation. Philip found at length a letter signed, Your Loving Brother, Albert. It was two or three weeks old, dated from some road in Surbiton, and refused a loan of five pounds. The writer had his wife and family to think of, he didn't feel justified in lending money, and his advice was that Fanny should come back to London and try to get a situation. Philip telegraphed to Albert Price, and in a little while an answer came. Deeply distressed, very awkward to leave my business. Is presence essential? Price. Philip wired a succinct affirmative, and next morning a stranger presented himself at the studio. My name's Price, he said, when Philip opened the door. He was a commonish man in black with a band round his bowler hat. He had something of Fanny's clumsy look. He wore a stubbly mustache and had a cockney accent. Philip asked him to come in. He cast sidelong glances round the studio while Philip gave him details of the accident and told him what he had done. "'I needn't see her, need I?' said Albert Price. "'My nerves aren't very good, and it takes very little to upset me.' He began to talk freely. He was a rubber merchant, and he had a wife and three children. Fanny was a governess, and he couldn't make out why she hadn't stuck to that instead of coming to Paris. Me and Mrs. Price told her Paris was no place for a girl, and there's no money in art, never has been. It was plain enough that he had not been on friendly terms with his sister, 
and he resented her suicide as a last injury that she had done him. He did not like the idea that she had been forced to it by poverty. That seemed to reflect on the family. The idea struck him that possibly there was a more respectable reason for her act. I suppose she hadn't any trouble with the man, had she? You know what I mean, Paris and all that. She might have done it so as not to disgrace herself. Philip felt himself reddening and cursed his weakness. Price's keen little eyes seemed to suspect him of an intrigue. I believe your sister to have been perfectly virtuous, he answered acidly. She killed herself because she was starving. Well, it's very hard on her family, Mr. Carey. She only had to write to me. I wouldn't have let my sister want. Philip had found the brother's address only by reading the letter in which he had refused a loan, but he shrugged his shoulders. There was no use in recrimination. He hated the little man and wanted to have done with him as soon as possible. Albert Price also wished to get through the necessary business quickly so that he could get back to London. They went to the tiny room in which poor Fanny had lived. Albert Price looked at the pictures and the furniture. "'I don't pretend to know much about art,' he said. "'I suppose these pictures would fetch something, wouldn't they?' "'Nothing,' said Philip. "'The furniture's not worth ten shillings.' Albert Price knew no French, and Philip had to do everything. It seemed that it was an interminable process to get the poor body safely hidden away underground. Papers had to be obtained in one place and signed in another. Officials had to be seen. For three days Philip was occupied from morning till night. At last he and Albert Price followed the hearse to the cemetery at Montpersan. I want to do the thing decent, said Albert Price, but there's no use wasting money. The short ceremony was infinitely dreadful in the cold gray morning. Half a dozen people who had worked with Fanny Price at the studio came to the funeral, Mrs. Otter because she was monsieur and thought it her duty, Ruth Chalice because she had a kind heart, Lawson, Clutton, and Flanagan. They had all disliked her during her life. Philip, looking across the cemetery crowded on all sides with monuments, some poor and simple, others vulgar, pretentious, and ugly, shuddered. It was horribly sordid. When they came out Albert Price asked Philip to lunch with him. Philip loathed him now, and he was tired. He had not been sleeping well, for he dreamed constantly of Fanny Price in the torn brown dress hanging from the nail in the ceiling but he could not think of an excuse. "'You take me somewhere where we can get a regular slap-up lunch. All this is the very worst thing for my nerves.' "'Levenue's is about the best place round here,' answered Philip. Albert Price settled himself on a velvet seat with a sigh of relief. He ordered a substantial luncheon and a bottle of wine. "'Well, I'm glad that's over,' he said. He threw out a few artful questions and Philip discovered that he was eager to hear about the painter's life in Paris. He represented it to himself as deplorable, but he was anxious for details of the orgies which his fancy suggested to him. With sly winks and discreet snickering he conveyed that he knew very well that there was a great deal more than Philip confessed. He was a man of the world, and he knew a thing or two. He asked Philip, whether he had ever been to any of those places in Montmartre which are celebrated from Temple Bar to the Royal Exchange. He would like to say he had been to the Moulin Rouge, 
The luncheon was very good, and the wine excellent. Albert Price expanded as the processes of digestion went satisfactorily forwards. "'Let's have a little brandy,' he said when the coffee was brought, "'and blow the expense.' He rubbed his hands. "'You know, I've got half a mind to stay over tonight and go back tomorrow. What do you say to spending the evening together?' If you mean you want me to take you round Montmartre tonight, I'll see you damned, said Philip. I suppose it wouldn't be quite the thing. The answer was made so seriously that Philip was tickled. Besides, it would be rotten for your nerves, he said gravely. Albert Price concluded that he had better go back to London by the four o'clock train, and presently he took leave of Philip. Well, good-bye, old man, he said. I'll tell you what. I'll try and come over to Paris again one of these days, and I'll look you up, and then we won't have to go on the razzle. Philip was too restless to work that afternoon, so he jumped on a bus and crossed the river to see whether there were any pictures on view at the Rand Ruelles. After that he strolled along the boulevard. It was cold and windswept. People hurried by, wrapped up in their coats, shrunk together in an effort to keep out of the cold and their faces were pinched and careworn. It was icy underground in the cemetery at Montpersant among all those white tombstones. Philip felt lonely in the world and strangely homesick. He wanted company. At that hour Cronshaw would be working, and Clutton never welcomed visitors. Lawson was painting another portrait of Ruth Chalice and would not care to be disturbed he made up his mind to go and see Flanagan. He found him painting, but delighted to throw up his work and talk. The studio was comfortable, for the American had more money than most of them, and warm. Flanagan set about making tea. Philip looked at the two heads that he was sending to the salon. "'It's awful cheek, my sending anything,' said Flanagan, "'but I don't care. I'm going to send. Do you think they're rotten?' "'Not so rotten as I should have expected,' said Philip. They showed, in fact, an astounding cleverness. The difficulties had been avoided with skill, and there was a dash about the way in which the paint was put on which was surprising and even attractive. Flanagan, without knowledge or technique, painted with the loose brush of a man who has spent a lifetime in the practice of the art. "'If one were forbidden to look at any picture for more than thirty seconds, you'd be a great master, Flanagan,' smiled Philip. "'These young people were not in the habit of spoiling one another with excessive flattery. "'We haven't got time in America to spend more than thirty seconds in looking at any picture,' laughed the other. Flanagan, though he was the most scatterbrained person in the world, had a tenderness of heart which was unexpected and charming.' Whenever anyone was ill he installed himself as sick-nurse. His gaiety was better than any medicine. Like many of his countrymen he had not the English dread of sentimentality which keeps so tight a hold on emotion, and, finding nothing absurd in the show of feeling, could offer an exuberant sympathy which was often grateful to his friends in distress. He saw that Philip was depressed by what he had gone through and with unaffected kindliness set himself boisterously to cheer him up. He exaggerated the Americanisms which he knew always made the Englishman laugh, and poured out a breathless stream of conversation, whimsical, high-spirited, and jolly. In due course they went out to dinner, and afterwards to the Gate Montparsan, which was Flanagan's favorite place of amusement. 
by the end of the evening he was in his most extravagant humor. He had drunk a good deal, but any inebriety from which he suffered was due much more to his own vivacity than to alcohol. He proposed that they should go to the Balbouillet, and Philip, feeling too tired to go to bed, willingly enough consented. They sat down at a table on the platform at the side, raised a little from the level of the floor, so that they could watch the dancing and drank a bock. Presently Flanagan saw a friend and with a wild shout leaped over the barrier onto the space where they were dancing. Philip watched the people. Boulier was not the resort of fashion. It was Thursday night and the place was crowded. There were a number of students of the various faculties, but most of the men were clerks or assistants in shops. They wore their everyday clothes, ready-made tweeds or queer tail coats, and their hats, for they had brought them in with them, and when they danced there was no place to put them but their heads. Some of the women looked like servant girls, and some were painted hussies, but for the most part they were shop girls. They were poorly dressed in cheap imitation of the fashions on the other side of the river. The hussies were got up to resemble the music-hall artiste or the dancer who enjoyed notoriety at the moment. Their eyes were heavy with black and their cheeks impotently scarlet. The hall was lit by great white lights, low down, which emphasized the shadows on the faces. All the lines seemed to harden under it, and the colors were most crude. It was a sordid scene. Philip leaned over the rail, staring down, and he ceased to hear the music. They danced furiously. They danced round the room, slowly, talking very little, with all their attention given to the dance. The room was hot and their faces shone with sweat. It seemed to Philip that they had thrown off the guard which people wear on their expression, the homage to convention, and he saw them now as they really were. In that moment of abandon they were strangely animal. Some were foxy and some were wolf-like, and others had the long foolish face of sheep. Their skins were sallow from the unhealthy life they led and the poor food they ate. Their features were blunted by mean interests, and their little eyes were shifty and cunning. There was nothing of nobility in their bearing, and you felt that for all of them life was a long succession of petty concerns and sordid thoughts. The air was heavy with the musty smell of humanity. But they danced furiously as though impelled by some strange power within them, and it seemed to Philip that they were driven forward by a rage for enjoyment. They were seeking desperately to escape from a world of horror. The desire for pleasure which Cronshaw said was the only motive of human action urged them blindly on, and the very vehemence of the desire seemed to rob it of all pleasure. They were hurried on by a great wind, helplessly, they knew not why, and they knew not whither. Fate seemed to tower above them, and they danced as though everlasting darkness were beneath their feet. Their silence was vaguely alarming. It was as if life terrified them and robbed them of power of speech so that the shriek which was in their hearts died at their throats. Their eyes were haggard and grim, and notwithstanding the beastly lust that disfigured them and the meanness of their faces and the cruelty notwithstanding the stupidness which was worst of all, the anguish of those fixed eyes made all that crowd terrible and pathetic. Philip loathed them, and yet his heart ached with the infinite pity which filled him. 
he took his coat from the cloakroom and went out into the bitter coldness of the night. End of chapter 49 Chapter 50 Philip could not get the unhappy event out of his head. What troubled him most was the uselessness of Fanny's effort. No one could have worked harder than she, nor with more sincerity. She believed in herself with all her heart, but it was plain that self-confidence meant very little. All his friends had it, Miguel O'Hura among the rest, and Philip was shocked by the contrast between the Spaniard's heroic endeavor and the triviality of the thing he attempted. The unhappiness of Philip's life at school had called up in him the power of self-analysis, and this vice, as subtle as drug-taking, had taken possession of him so that he had now a peculiar keenness in the dissection of his feelings. He could not help seeing that art affected him differently from others. A fine picture gave Lawson an immediate thrill. His appreciation was instinctive. Even Flanagan felt certain things which Philip was obliged to think out. His own appreciation was intellectual. He could not help thinking that if he had in him the artistic temperament, he hated the phrase but could discover no other, he would feel beauty in the emotional, unreasoning way in which they did. He began to wonder whether he had anything more than a superficial cleverness of the hand which enabled him to copy objects with accuracy. That was nothing. He had learned to despise technical dexterity. The important thing was to feel in terms of paint. Lawson painted in a certain way because it was his nature to, and through the imitativeness of a student sensitive to every influence, there pierced individuality. Philip looked at his own portrait of Ruth Chalice, and now that three months had passed he realized that it was no more than a servile copy of Lawson. He felt himself barren. He painted with the brain and he could not help knowing that the only painting worth anything was done with the heart. He had very little money, barely sixteen hundred pounds, and it would be necessary for him to practice the severest economy. He could not count on earning anything for ten years. The history of painting was full of artists who had earned nothing at all. He must resign himself to penury, and it was worthwhile if he produced work which was immortal but he had a terrible fear that he would never be more than second-rate. Was it worth while for that to give up one's youth and the gaiety of life and the manifold chances of being? He knew the existence of foreign painters in Paris enough to see that the lives they led were narrowly provincial. He knew some who had dragged along for twenty years in the pursuit of a fame which always escaped them till they sunk into sordidness and alcoholism. Fanny's suicide had aroused memories, and Philip heard ghastly stories of the way in which one person or another had escaped from despair. He remembered the scornful advice which the master had given poor Fanny. It would have been well for her if she had taken it and given up an attempt which was hopeless. Philip finished his portrait of Miguel Ahura and made up his mind to send it to the salon. Flanagan was sending two pictures and he thought he could paint as well as Flanagan. He had worked so hard on the portrait that he could not help feeling it must have merit. It was true that when he looked at it he felt that there was something wrong, though he could not tell what. 
but when he was away from it his spirits went up and he was not dissatisfied. He sent it to the salon and it was refused. He did not mind much, since he had done all he could to persuade himself that there was little chance that it would be taken, till Flanagan a few days later rushed in to tell Lawson and Philip that one of his pictures was accepted. With a blank face Philip offered his congratulations, and Flanagan was so busy congratulating himself that he did not catch the note of irony which Philip could not prevent from coming into his voice. Lawson, quicker-witted, observed it and looked at Philip curiously. His own picture was all right, he knew that a day or two before, and he was vaguely resentful of Philip's attitude, but he was surprised at the sudden question which Philip put him as soon as the American was gone. "'If you were in my place, would you chuck the whole thing?' "'What do you mean? I wonder if it's worth while being a second-rate painter. You see, in other things, if you're a doctor or if you're in business, it doesn't matter so much if you're mediocre. You make a living and you get along. But what is the good of turning out second-rate pictures?' Lawson was fond of Philip, and as soon as he had thought he was seriously distressed by the refusal of his picture, he set to console him. It was notorious that the Salon had refused pictures which were afterwards famous. It was the first time Philip had sent, and he must expect a rebuff. Flanagan's success was explicable. His picture was showy and superficial. It was just the sort of thing a languid jury would see merited. Philip grew impatient. It was humiliating that Lawson should think him capable of being seriously disturbed by so trivial a calamity and would not realize that his dejection was due to a deep-seated distrust of his powers. Of late Clutton had withdrawn himself somewhat from the group who took their meals at Gravier's and lived very much by himself. Flanagan said he was in love with a girl, but Clutton's austere countenance did not suggest passion, and Philip thought it more probable that he separated himself from his friends so that he might grow clear with the new ideas which were in him but that evening when the others had left the restaurant to go to a play and Philip was sitting alone, Clutton came in and ordered dinner. They began to talk, and finding Clutton more loquacious and less sardonic than usual, Philip determined to take advantage of his good humor. "'I say, I wish you'd come and look at my picture,' he said. "'I'd like to know what you think of it.' "'No, I won't do that.' "'Why not?' asked Philip, reddening. The request was one which they all made of one another, and no one ever thought of refusing. Clutton shrugged his shoulders. People ask you for criticism, but they only want praise. Besides, what's the good of criticism? What does it matter if your picture is good or bad? It matters to me. No, the only reason that one paints is that one can't help it. It's a function like any of the other functions of the body, only comparatively few people have got it one paints for oneself, otherwise one would commit suicide. Just think of it. You spend God knows how long trying to get something onto canvas, putting the sweat of your soul into it, and what is the result? Ten to one it will be refused at the salon. If it's accepted people glance at it for ten seconds as they pass. If you're lucky some ignorant fool will buy it and put it on his walls and look at it as little as he looks at his dining-room table criticism has nothing to do with the artist. It judges objectively, but the objective doesn't concern the artist. Clutton, 
put his hands over his eyes so that he might concentrate his mind on what he wanted to say. The artist gets a peculiar sensation from something he sees and is impelled to express it, and he doesn't know why he can only express his feeling by lines and colors. It's like a musician. He'll read a line or two and a certain combination of notes presents itself to him. He doesn't know why such and such words call forth in him such and such notes. They just do. And I'll tell you another reason why criticism is meaningless. A great painter forces the world to see nature as he sees it, but in the next generation another painter sees the world in another way, and then the public judges him not by himself but by his predecessor. So the Barbizon people taught our fathers to look at trees in a certain manner, and when Monet came along and painted differently, people said, but trees aren't like that. It never struck them that trees are exactly how a painter chooses to see them. We paint from within outwards. If we force our vision on the world, it calls us great painters. If we don't, it ignores us, but we are the same. We don't attach any meaning to greatness or to smallness. What happens to our work afterwards is unimportant. We have got all we could out of it while we were doing it. There was a pause while Clutton, with voracious appetite, devoured the food that was set before him. Philip, smoking a cheap cigar, observed him closely. The ruggedness of the head, which looked as though it were carved from a stone refractory to the sculptor's chisel, the rough mane of dark hair, the great nose, and the massive bones of the jaw, suggested a man of strength, and yet Philip wondered whether perhaps the mask concealed a strange weakness. Clutton's refusal to show his work might be sheer vanity. He could not bear the thought of anyone's criticism, and he would not expose himself to the chance of a refusal from the Salon. He wanted to be received as a master, and would not risk comparisons with other work which might force him to diminish his own opinion of himself. During the eighteen months Philip had known him, Clutton had grown more harsh and bitter. Though he would not come out into the open and compete with his fellows, he was indignant with the facile success of those who did. He had no patience with Lawson, and the pair were no longer on the intimate terms upon which they had been when Philip first knew them. "'Lawson's all right,' he said contemptuously. "'He'll go back to England, become a fashionable portrait painter.' earn ten thousand a year, and be an A.R.A. before he's forty. Portraits done by hand for the nobility and gentry. Philip, too, looked into the future, and he saw Clutton in twenty years, bitter, lonely, savage and unknown, still in Paris for the life there had got into his bones, ruling a small cynical with a savage tongue, at war with himself and the world, producing little in his increasing passion for perfection he could not reach, and perhaps sinking at last into drunkenness. Of late Philip had been captivated by an idea that since one had only one life it was important to make a success of it, but he did not count success by the acquiring of money or the achieving of fame. He did not quite know yet what he meant by it, perhaps variety of experience and the making the most of his abilities. It was plain anyway that the life which Clutton seemed destined to was failure. Its only justification would be the painting of imperishable masterpieces. He recollected Cronshaw's whimsical metaphor of the Persian carpet. He had thought of it often, but Cronshaw with his fawny-like humor had refused to make his meaning clear. 
he repeated that it had none unless one discovered it for oneself. It was this desire to make a success of life which was at the bottom of Philip's uncertainty about continuing his artistic career. But Clutton began to talk again. "'Do you remember my telling you about that chap I met in Brittany? I saw him the other day here. He's just off to Tahiti. He was broke to the world. He was a brasseur d'affaires, a stockbroker, I suppose you call it in English, and he had a wife and family, and he was earning a large income.' he chucked it all to become a painter. He just went off and settled down in Brittany and began to paint. He hadn't got any money and did the next best thing to starving. And what about his wife and family? asked Philip. Oh, he dropped them. He left them to starve on their own account. It sounds a pretty low-down thing to do. Oh, my dear fellow, if you want to be a gentleman you must give up being an artist. They've got nothing to do with one another." you hear of men painting pot-boilers to keep an aged mother. Well, it shows they're excellent sons, but it's no excuse for bad work. They're only tradesmen. An artist would let his mother go to the workhouse. There's a writer I know over here who told me that his wife died in childbirth. He was in love with her and he was mad with grief, but as he sat at the bedside watching her die, he found himself making mental notes of how she looked and what she said and the things he was feeling. Gentlemanly, wasn't it? "'But is your friend a good painter?' asked Philip. "'No, not yet. He paints just like Pizarro. He hasn't found himself, but he's got a sense of color and a sense of decoration. But that isn't the question. It's the feeling, and that he's got. He's behaved like a perfect cad to his wife and children. He's always behaving like a perfect cad the way he treats the people who've helped him, and sometimes he's been saved from starvation merely by the kindness of his friends, is simply beastly. He just happens to be a great artist. Philip pondered over the man who was willing to sacrifice everything, comfort, home, money, love, honor, duty, for the sake of getting on to canvas with paint the emotion which the world gave him. It was magnificent, and yet his courage failed him. Thinking of Cronshaw recalled to him the fact that he had not seen him for a week, and so when Clutton left him he wandered along to the café in which he was certain to find the writer. During the first few months of his stay in Paris Philip had accepted as gospel all that Cronshaw said, but Philip had a practical outlook, and he grew impatient with the theories which resulted in no action. Cronshaw's slim bundle of poetry did not seem a substantial result for a life which was sordid. Philip could not wrench out of his nature the instincts of the middle class from which he came, and the penury, the hack-work which Cronshaw did to keep body and soul together, the monotony of existence between the slovenly attic and the café table jarred with his respectability. Cronshaw was astute enough to know that the young man disapproved of him, and he attacked his philistinism with an irony which was sometimes playful but often very keen you're a tradesman he told philip you want to invest life in consoles so that it shall bring you in a safe three per cent i'm a spendthrift i run through my capital i shall spend my last penny with my last heartbeat the metaphor irritated philip because it assumed for the speaker a romantic attitude and cast a slur upon the position which Philip instinctively felt had more to say for it than he could think of at the moment. 
but this evening Philip, undecided, wanted to talk about himself. Fortunately it was late already, and Cronshaw's pile of saucers on the table, each indicating a drink, suggested that he was prepared to take an independent view of things in general. "'I wonder if you'd give me some advice,' said Philip suddenly. "'You won't take it, will you?' Philip shrugged his shoulders impatiently. "'I don't believe I shall ever do much good as a painter. I don't see any use in being second-rate. I'm thinking of chucking it.' "'Why shouldn't you?' Philip hesitated for an instant. I suppose I like the life. A change came over Cronshaw's placid round face. The corners of the mouth were suddenly depressed, the eyes sunk dully in their orbits. He seemed to become strangely bowed and old. This, he cried, looking round the café in which they sat. His voice really trembled a little. If you can get out of it, do while there's time. Philip stared at him with astonishment, but the sight of emotion always made him feel shy and he dropped his eyes. He knew that he was looking upon the tragedy of failure. There was silence. Philip thought that Cronshaw was looking upon his own life, and perhaps he considered his youth with its bright hopes and the disappointments which wore out the radiancy, the wretched monotony of pleasure and the black future. Philip's eyes rested on the little pile of saucers and he knew that Cronshaw's were on them too. End of chapter 50 Chapter 51 Two months passed. It seemed to Philip, brooding over these matters, that in the true painters, writers, musicians, there was a power which drove them to such complete absorption in their work as to make it inevitable for them to subordinate life to art. Succumbing to an influence they never realized, they were merely dupes of the instinct that possessed them, and life slipped through their fingers unlived. But he had a feeling that life was to be lived rather than portrayed, and he wanted to search out the various experiences of it and wring from each moment all the emotion that it offered. He made up his mind at length to take a certain step and abide by the result, and, having made up his mind, he determined to take the step at once. Luckily enough, the next morning was one of Poinet's days, and he resolved to ask him, point-blank, whether it was worth his while to go on with the study of art. He had never forgotten the master's brutal advice to Fanny Price. It had been sound. Philip could never get Fanny entirely out of his head. The studio seemed strange without her, and now and then the gesture of one of the women working there or a tone of a voice would give him a sudden start reminding him of her. Her presence was more noticeable now she was dead than it had ever been during her life, and he often dreamed of her at night, waking with a cry of terror. It was horrible to think of all the suffering she must have endured. Philip knew that on the day Soinet came to the studio he lunched at a little restaurant in the Rue d'Odessa and he hurried his own meal so that he could go and wait outside till the painter came out. Philip walked up and down the crowded street, and at last saw Monsieur Foinet walking with bent head towards him. Philip was very nervous, but he forced himself to go up to him. Pardon, monsieur, I should like to speak to you for one moment. Foinet gave him a rapid glance, recognized him, but did not smile the greeting. Speak, he said. I've been working here nearly two years now under you. 
I wanted to ask you to tell me frankly if you think it's worthwhile for me to continue. Philip's voice was trembling a little. Foinet walked on without looking up. Philip, watching his face, saw no trace of expression upon it. I don't understand. I'm very poor. If I have no talent, I would sooner do something else. Don't you know if you have talent? All my friends know they have talent, but I am aware some of them are mistaken. Juanet's bitter mouth outlined the shadow of a smile, and he asked, Do you live near here? Philip told him where his studio was. Juanet turned round. Let us go there. You shall show me your work. Now? cried Philip. Why not? Philip had nothing to say. He walked silently by the master's side. He felt horribly sick. It had never struck him that Foinet would wish to see his things there and then. He meant so that he might have time to prepare himself, to ask him if he would mind coming at some future date, or whether he might bring them to Foinet's studio. He was trembling with anxiety. In his heart he hoped that Foinet would look at his picture and that rare smile would come into his face, and he would shake Philip's hand and say, Pasma, go on, my lad. You have talent, real talent. Philip's heart swelled at the thought. It was such a relief, such a joy. Now he could go on with courage. And what did hardship matter, privation, and disappointment, if he arrived at last? He had worked very hard. It would be too cruel if all that industry were futile. And then, with a start, he remembered that he had heard Fanny Price say just that. They arrived at the house and Philip was seized with fear. If he had dared he would have asked Juanet to go away. He did not want to know the truth. They went in and the concierge handed him a letter as they passed. He glanced at the envelope and recognized his uncle's handwriting. Juanet followed him up the stairs. Philip could think of nothing to say. Juanet was mute and the silence got on his nerves. The professor sat down, and Philip, without a word, placed before him the pictures which the Salon had rejected. Fournay nodded, but did not speak. Then Philip showed him the two portraits he had made of Rousselis, two or three landscapes which he had painted at Moray, and a number of sketches. That's all, he said presently with a nervous laugh. Monsieur Fournay rolled himself a cigarette and lit it. "'You have very little private means?' he asked at last. "'Very little,' answered Philip, with a sudden feeling of cold at his heart. "'Not enough to live on.' "'There is nothing so degrading as the constant anxiety about one's means of livelihood. I have nothing but contempt for the people who despise money. They are hypocrites or fools. Money is like a sixth sense without which you cannot make a complete use of the other five. Without an adequate income, half the possibilities of life are shut off. The only thing to be careful about is that you do not pay more than a shilling for the shilling you earn. You will hear people say that poverty is the best spur to an artist. They have never felt the iron of it in their flesh. They do not know how mean it makes you. It exposes you to endless humiliation. It cuts your wings. It eats into your soul like a cancer. It is not wealth one asked for, but just enough to preserve one's dignity, to work unhampered, to be generous, frank, and independent. I pity with all my heart the artist, whether he writes or paints, who is entirely dependent for subsistence upon his art. 
Philip quietly put away the various things which he had shown. "'I'm afraid that sounds as if you didn't think I had much chance.' Master Foinet slightly shrugged his shoulders. "'You have a certain manual dexterity. With hard work and perseverance there is no reason why you should not become a careful, not incompetent painter. You would find hundreds who painted worse than you, hundreds who painted as well. I see no talent in anything you have shown me. I see industry and intelligence. You will never be anything but mediocre." Philip obliged himself to answer quite steadily. "'I'm very grateful to you for having taken so much trouble. I can't thank you enough.' Monsieur Foinet got up and made as if to go, but he changed his mind and, stopping, put his hand on Philip's shoulder. "'But if you were to ask me my advice, I should say, take your courage in both hands and try your luck at something else. It sounds very hard, but let me tell you this. I would give all I have in the world if someone had given me that advice when I was your age and I had taken it. Philip looked up at him with surprise. The master forced his lips into a smile, but his eyes remained grave and sad. It is cruel to discover one's mediocrity only when it is too late. It does not improve the temper. He gave a little laugh as he said the last words, and quickly walked out of the room. Philip mechanically took up the letter from his uncle. The sight of his handwriting made him anxious, for it was his aunt who always wrote to him. She had been ill for the last three months, and he had offered to go over to England and see her but she, fearing it would interfere with his work, had refused. She did not want him to put himself to inconvenience. She said she would wait till August, and then she hoped he would come and stay at the vicarage for two or three weeks. If by any chance she grew worse, she would let him know, since she did not wish to die without seeing him again. If his uncle wrote to him, it must be because she was too ill to hold a pen. Philip opened the letter. It ran as follows. My dear Philip, I regret to inform you that your dear aunt departed this life early this morning. She died very suddenly but quite peacefully. The change for the worse was so rapid that we had no time to send for you. She was fully prepared for the end and entered into rest with the complete assurance of a blessed resurrection and with resignation to the divine will of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Your aunt would have liked you to be present at the funeral, so I trust you will come as soon as you can. There is naturally a great deal of work thrown upon my shoulders, and I am very much upset. I trust that you will be able to do everything for me. Your affectionate uncle, William Carey. End of chapter 51 Chapter 52 Next day Philip arrived at Blackstable. Since the death of his mother he had never lost anyone closely connected with him. His aunt's death shocked him and filled him also with a curious fear. He felt for the first time his own mortality. He could not realize what life would be for his uncle without the constant companionship of the woman who had loved and tended him for forty years. He expected to find him broken down with hopeless grief. He dreaded the first meeting. He knew that he could say nothing which would be of use. He rehearsed to himself a number of apposite speeches. He entered the vicarage by the side door and went into the dining-room, 
Uncle William was reading the paper. "'Your train was late,' he said, looking up. Philip was prepared to give way to his emotion, but the matter-of-fact reception startled him. His uncle, subdued but calm, handed him the paper. "'There's a very nice little paragraph about her in the Blackstable Times,' he said. Philip read it mechanically. "'Would you like to come up and see her?' Philip nodded, and together they walked upstairs. Aunt Louisa was lying in the middle of the large bed with flowers all round her. "'Would you like to say a short prayer?' said the vicar. He sank on his knees, and because it was expected of him, Philip followed his example. He looked at the little shriveled face. He was only conscious of one emotion. What a wasted life! In a minute Mr. Carey gave a cough and stood up. He pointed to a wreath at the foot of the bed. "'That's from the squire,' he said. He spoke in a low voice, as though he were in church, but one felt that, as a clergyman, he found himself quite at home. "'I expect tea is ready.' They went down again to the dining-room. The drawn blinds gave a lugubrious aspect. The vicar sat at the end of the table at which his wife had always sat and poured out the tea with ceremony. Philip could not help feeling that neither of them should have been able to eat anything, but when he saw that his uncle's appetite was unimpaired he fell to with his usual heartiness. They did not speak for a while. Philip set himself to eat an excellent cake with the air of grief which he felt was decent. "'Things have changed a great deal since I was a curate,' said the vicar presently. "'In my young days the mourners used always to be given a pair of black gloves and a piece of black silk for their hats. Poor Louisa used to make the silk into dresses. She always said that twelve funerals gave her a new dress.' Then he told Philip who had sent Reese. There were twenty-four of them already. When Mrs. Rawlingson, wife of the vicar at Fern, had died, she had had thirty-two, but probably a good many more would come the next day. The funeral would start at eleven o'clock from the vicarage, and they should beat Mrs. Rawlingson easily. Louisa never liked Mrs. Rawlingson. "'I shall take the funeral myself. I promised Louisa I would never let anyone else bury her.' Philip looked at his uncle with disapproval when he took a second piece of cake. Under the circumstances he could not help thinking it greedy. Mary Ann certainly makes capital cakes. I'm afraid no one else will make such good ones. She's not going, cried Philip with astonishment. Mary Ann had been at the vicarage ever since he could remember. She never forgot his birthday, but made a point always of sending him a trifle, absurd but touching. He had a real affection for her. Yes, answered Mr. Carey. I don't think it would do to have a single woman in the house. But good heavens, she must be over forty. Yes, I think she is. But she's been rather troublesome lately. She's been inclined to take too much on herself, and I thought this was a very good opportunity to give her notice. It's certainly one which isn't likely to recur, said Philip. He took out a cigarette, but his uncle prevented him from lighting it. Not till after the funeral, Philip, he said gently. All right, said Philip. It wouldn't be quite respectful to smoke in the house so long as your poor Aunt Louisa is upstairs. Josiah Graves, churchwarden and manager of the bank, came back to dinner at the vicarage after the funeral. The blinds had been drawn up, and Philip, against his will, felt a curious sensation of relief. 
the body in the house had made him uncomfortable. In life the poor woman had been all that was kind and gentle, and yet when she lay upstairs in her bedroom, cold and stark, it seemed as though she cast upon the survivors a baleful influence. The thought horrified Philip. He found himself alone for a minute or two in the dining-room with the churchwarden. "'I hope you'll be able to stay with your uncle a while,' he said. "'I don't think he ought to be left alone just yet.' "'I haven't made any plans,' answered Philip. "'If he wants me, I shall be very pleased to stay.' By way of cheering the bereaved husband, the churchwarden during dinner talked of a recent fire at Blackstable which had partly destroyed the Wesleyan chapel. "'I hear they weren't insured,' he said with a little smile. "'That won't make any difference,' said the vicar. "'They'll get as much money as they want to rebuild. Chapel people are always ready to give money.' "'I see that Holden sent a wreath. Holden was the dissenting minister, and though for Christ's sake who died for both of them, Mr. Carey nodded to him in the street, he did not speak to him. "'I think it was very pushing,' he remarked. "'There were forty-one wreaths. Yours was beautiful.' Philip and I admired it very much. Don't mention it, said the banker. He had noticed with satisfaction that it was larger than anyone else's. It had looked very well. They began to discuss the people who attended the funeral. Shops had been closed for it, and the church warden took out of his pocket the notice which had been printed. Owing to the funeral of Mrs. Carey, this establishment will not be opened till one o'clock. It was my idea, he said. I think it was very nice of them to close, said the vicar. Poor Louisa would have appreciated that. Philip ate his dinner. Marianne had treated the day as Sunday, and they had roast chicken and a gooseberry tart. I suppose you hadn't thought about a tombstone yet, said the churchwarden. Yes, I have. I thought of a plain stone cross. Louisa was always against ostentation. I don't think one can do much better than a cross. If you're thinking of a text, what do you say to, with Christ, which is far better? The vicar pursed his lips. It was just like Bismarck to try and settle everything himself. He did not like that text. It seemed to cast an aspersion on himself. I don't think I should put it that way. I much prefer, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Oh, do you? That always seems to me a little indifferent. The vicar answered with some acidity and Mr. Graves replied in a tone which the widower thought too authoritative for the occasion. Things were going rather far if he could not choose his own text for his own wife's tombstone. There was a pause, and then the conversation drifted to parish matters. Philip went into the garden to smoke his pipe. He sat on a bench and suddenly began to laugh hysterically. A few days later his uncle expressed the hope that he would spend the next few weeks at Blackstable. "'Yes, that will suit me very well,' said Philip. "'I suppose it'll do if you go back to Paris in September.' Philip did not reply. He had thought much of what Poinet said to him, but he was still so undecided that he did not wish to speak of the future. There would be something fine in giving up art because he was convinced that he could not excel, but unfortunately it would seem so only to himself. To others it would be an admission of defeat, and he did not want to confess that he was beaten. He was an obstinate fellow, and the suspicion that his talent did not lie in one direction made him inclined to force circumstances 
and aim notwithstanding precisely in that direction. He could not bear that his friends should laugh at him. This might have prevented him from ever taking the definite step of abandoning the study of painting, but the different environment made him on a sudden see things differently. Like many another, he discovered that crossing the channel makes things which had seemed important singularly futile. The life which had been so charming that he could not bear to leave it now seemed inept. He was seized with a distaste for the cafés, the restaurants with their ill-cooked food, the shabby way in which they all lived. He did not care any more what his friends thought about him. Cronshaw with his rhetoric, Mrs. Otter with her respectability, Ruth Chalice with her affectations, Lawson and Clutton with their quarrels. He felt a revulsion from them all. He wrote to Lawson and asked him to send over all his belongings. A week later they arrived. When he unpacked his canvases, he found himself able to examine his work without emotion. He noticed the fact with interest. His uncle was anxious to see his pictures. Though he had so greatly disapproved of Philip's desire to go to Paris, he accepted the situation now with equanimity. He was interested in the life of students and constantly put Philip questions about it. He was, in fact, a little proud of him because he was a painter, and when people were present made attempts to draw him out. He looked eagerly at the studies of models which Philip showed him. Philip sat before him his portrait of Miguel Ahura. "'Why did you paint him?' asked Mr. Carey. "'Oh, I wanted a model, and his head interested me. "'As you haven't got anything to do here, I wonder you don't paint me. "'It would bore you to sit. I think I should like it. We must see about it.' Philip was amused at his uncle's vanity. It was clear that he was dying to have his portrait painted. To get something for nothing was a chance not to be missed. For two or three days he threw out little hints. He reproached Philip for laziness, asked him when he was going to start work, and finally began telling everyone he met that Philip was going to paint him. At last there came a rainy day, and after breakfast Mr. Carey said to Philip, "'Now, what do you say to starting on my portrait this morning?' Philip put down the book he was reading and leaned back in his chair. "'I've given up painting,' he said. "'Why?' asked his uncle in astonishment. "'I don't think there's much object in being a second-rate painter, and I came to the conclusion that I should never be anything else.' "'You surprise me. Before you went to Paris you were quite certain that you were a genius.' "'I was mistaken,' said Philip. "'I should have thought now you'd taken up a profession you'd have the pride to stick to it. It seems to me that what you lack is perseverance.' Philip was a little annoyed that his uncle did not even see how truly heroic his determination was. A rolling stone gathers no moss, proceeded the clergyman. Philip hated that proverb above all, and it seemed to him perfectly meaningless. His uncle had repeated it often during the arguments which had preceded his departure from business. Apparently it recalled that occasion to his guardian. "'You're no longer a boy, you know.' you must begin to think of settling down. First you insist on becoming a chartered accountant, and then you get tired of that and you want to become a painter, and now, if you please, you change your mind again. It points to—' He hesitated for a moment to consider what defects of character exactly it indicated, and Philip finished the sentence. 
irresolution, incompetence, want of foresight, and lack of determination. The vicar looked up at his nephew quickly to see whether he was laughing at him. Philip's face was serious, but there was a twinkle in his eyes which irritated him. Philip should really be getting more serious. He felt it right to give him a rap over the knuckles. "'Your money matters have nothing to do with me now. You're your own master, but I think you should remember that your money won't last forever, and the unlucky deformity you have doesn't exactly make it easier for you to earn your living.' Philip knew by now that whenever anyone was angry with him his first thought was to say something about his club foot. His estimate of the human race was determined by the fact that scarcely anyone failed to resist the temptation. But he had trained himself not to show any sign that the reminder wounded him. He had even acquired control over the blushing which in his boyhood had been one of his torments. "'As you justly remark,' he answered, my money matters have nothing to do with you, and I am my own master. At all events you will do me the justice to acknowledge that I was justified in my opposition when you made up your mind to become an art student. I don't know so much about that. I dare say one profits more by the mistakes one makes off one's own bat than by doing the right thing on somebody else's advice. I've had my fling, and I don't mind settling down now what at? Philip was not prepared for the question, since in fact he had not made up his mind. He had thought of a dozen callings. The most suitable thing you could do is enter your father's profession and become a doctor. Oddly enough, that is precisely what I intend. He had thought of doctoring among other things, chiefly because it was an occupation which seemed to give a good deal of personal freedom, and his experience of life at an office had made him determine never to have anything more to do with one. His answer to the vicar slipped out almost unawares, because it was in the nature of a repartee. It amused him to make up his mind in that accidental way, and he resolved then and there to enter his father's old hospital in the autumn. Then your two years in Paris may be regarded as so much wasted time? I don't know about that. I had a very jolly two years, and I learned one or two useful things. What? Philip reflected for an instant, and his answer was not devoid of a gentle desire to annoy. I learned to look at hands which I'd never looked at before, and instead of just looking at houses and trees, I learned to look at houses and trees against the sky. And I learned also that shadows are not black, but colored. I suppose you think you're very clever. I think your flippancy is quite inane. End of chapter 52 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com